We come this morning to continue in our study of the false Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory. Now this is not to be confused with Christ's teaching of the doctrine of hell. And that is that the wicked, those who have not trusted in Jesus, are for their crimes against God sent to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. And this is clear teaching of Christ. And it cannot be gainsaid or escaped or wriggled out of in any way. That all those who have not put their faith on the Lord Jesus, all those who have not claimed the sacrifice of Christ as God's Lamb in their place, are forever doomed to judgment and hell. But the false teaching of purgatory is the idea that our sins, the sins of believers who have trusted in Jesus, that the sins are forgiven, that God takes away the guilt, but not the punishment, not the torment. And that believers must suffer the flames of torment to cleanse away the sin before we can enter into heaven. We had spoken previously that not only is there no Scripture to support the false Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory, but really that doesn't matter to them. They make up stuff and declare it to be truth by the so-called authority of their so-called church. But their own teachings regarding indulgences overthrow the necessity for the torment of flames to purify the souls of sinful believers. We all must be tormented, they say, except in the cases when we are allowed to escape the torment, which means it's not necessary at all in the first place. But this false teaching has the effect of sucking out all the goodness and precious comforts of true Bible doctrines spiriting away the believer's true hope in Christ's saving work for His people. Consider Christ's teaching regarding the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor, terribly sick beggar who lived on the street before the rich man's house. When Lazarus died, Jesus assures us that the angels took Lazarus to paradise to rest with Abraham and all the other saints of olden times. There, Jewish teachings held, the Lord's people would remain in comfort until the resurrection at the end of the ages. But the rich man died and opened his eyes in hell, a place of fiery torment. He begged for mercy, but was informed by Abraham that was impossible. Notice that there is no room to shoehorn purgatory into Christ's timeline here. Lazarus is taken immediately by the angels to paradise. The teaching of Christ is clear. There is eternal torment in the fire for the wicked. And there is immediate comfort and blessing for the Lord's people the moment they die. Sadly, the Roman Catholic apologists try to twist this teaching of Jesus into some sort of of support for the false idea of purgatory. They claim the rich man was only really in purgatory. When it's clear he never repented and that there was no hope for him, Father Abraham provided the rich man with no prospect of relief at all. Then they claim that Lazarus had no need for purgatory since he had suffered so much in this life. This 
merely repeats the false medieval and pagan notion that suffering is somehow salvific. The false teaching of purgatory manages to take away all the goodness and hope that Jesus teaches to us here and impose upon poor believers an endless cycle of ritual and good works because in the end it's left up to us to save ourselves from the torment of the flames when we die, even though we have trusted in the Lord Jesus. Another example of the penitent thief on the cross, next to the dying Lord Jesus, God worked a miraculous faith in this wicked dying man. For how can anybody place their trust in a dying Savior? But this man did. Yet this criminal trusted that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And no matter what wicked men were doing to him then, that Christ would triumph and rule over his kingdom one day. This thief knew he had no chance of ever going to paradise with all his crimes. So he asked Jesus to remember him when the kingdom was established. But Jesus gave this man an astounding promise. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief thought he was bound for torment and flames. But Jesus assured him of comfort and rest today. What this requires is that Jesus forgave this man of his great sins. Perhaps the man didn't understand it yet, but Jesus was satisfying divine justice in the place of the thief as well as of all the Lord's people who trusted Him. Christ suffered on the cross so that even criminals who trusted Him might be rescued from the wrath that is to come. The thief had done everything he could to deserve eternal torment. But no matter, the Lord Jesus undertook the responsibility for all of that and promised to take this thief to paradise. The incident is a great comfort to the Lord's people that we will be with Christ immediately when we die. It is also a comfort to lost sinners who believe they are too evil for Jesus to save. And finally, it is a great comfort to know that Christ can save sinners at the last moments of their lives because God can change their hearts and implant faith and repentance no matter how disobedient and rebellious they have been all their lives before. And note well, there is no room to insert a stint in purgatory for the poor thief. Today, you will be with me in paradise. But as usual, false Roman Catholic teaching tries to strip away the comfort and assurance that this incident gives to the Lord's people. Purgatory teaching takes away the glory and the good promises that Jesus gave to us and subjects the believers to fear of torments after we've trusted in Jesus. Paul the Apostle also taught the instant transport of believers into the presence and glory of Christ when we die. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul declares this truth. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There is no room in Paul's teaching for the interposition of purgatory or torments for believers after their death. We do not come to the Lord's table 
we who have trusted in Jesus, to seek the forgiveness of our sin. For Jesus has already paid all the price for that. We come to celebrate the sacrifice He made at Calvary that took away our sin and our punishment also. We must not allow false teachings to rob us of the blessed promises that the Lord Jesus made unto us. There is one additional text of Scripture that confirms this notion of no room for a stint in purgatory, and that's found in Paul's teaching to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You remember how he said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, that means go before them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Notice the problem for the false teaching of purgatory here is that there is no transition through purgatory for the saints who are alive when Christ returns. But rather, we are caught up together with the Lord Jesus and the risen dead believers. We're caught up together with them all in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And note well, so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's not a pre-processing camp that we're sent to. Uh, by the way, you know, y'all people, y'all have to go take this left-hand route over here to the purgatory for the torments to cleanse your souls before you're purified enough to be in my presence. No. You see, one moment the saints are alive and walking around or sleeping or whatever it is they're doing when the Lord comes, and the next moment they're ascending in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So it appears that there is no need for the cleansing fires of purgatory to prepare the believers who are alive when Christ returns to enter into His presence forever. And so the doctrine of purgatory is once again overthrown by the Scriptures. Now we have shown that there is no requirement or possibility that the Lord's people must be purified by the torments of purgatory and that the quote-unquote reasonable argument, which we started with several weeks ago, that's raised in favor of purgatory, collapses under the weight of the false teaching of indulgences. That after all, there is no necessity of torment, but good work and rituals and the sufferings of other people will suffice. That's the way in which indulgences derail the arguments for purgatory, the reasonable arguments that people tend to rely upon. How then does God make His people fit to be in His presence when we have all sinned? First of all, 
Our Lord has the power to forgive sins. We ought not to forget that. He has the power to forgive sins. You remember the story that we read earlier this morning of the paralyzed man whose friends let him down through a hole in the roof that they excavated because the crowd in the house around Jesus was too dense for them to carry him on his litter into the presence of Christ. And they were bound and determined to present this poor crippled man before the Lord Jesus for a divine miracle of healing which they knew Jesus had the power to carry out. And you remember what the Lord Jesus said to them. When Jesus saw their faith at verse 5 of Mark 2, He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now that wasn't what they came for, presumably. But Jesus forgave this man his sin. And he had the right and the power to. And he had the legal basis upon doing so in his future sacrifice for that man's sins on the cross. So that he could be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? You see, the embedded mocking in the doctrine of purgatory is that really Christ doesn't have the power to forgive sins without torments laid on to somehow make things right for the believer. And immediately when Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, He said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. You see what Jesus is saying is that a sign of His power to forgive sin is that He could raise this sick man off of his bed and heal him of his paralysis. And sure enough, he did. The man got up and walked out of the room with his bed. I suppose that they made way for him to leave when they wouldn't make way for him to enter, would they? You see, we must not scoff at or be incredulous of Christ's mighty power to forgive our sins. He has said He forgives our sin. By His bloodshedding, He has taken away our sin. You remember at the Lord's table it says, this is my blood of the New Testament shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. That's the basis on which our sins are indeed forgiven by the mighty power of Christ. He has won the right by satisfying justice for us. All of justice, not just part of it. He suffered already in our place at Calvary so that there is for us no debt to be paid to justice and to God for our sin. We might also look at John chapter 5. You remember after Christ healed the man, in that instance that the Jewish leaders were angry at Him because He did it on the Sabbath day. But we read at verse 24, Christ declare this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that means mark this out, it's really, really true, and I'm really, really serious about it when I say unto you, 
He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority also to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. And so the question we have to all ask is, have we trusted in Jesus to be our salvation, our life, our forgiveness, our resurrection? Or are we still trusting in our own self, in our own works, in our own good deeds, that we're not as bad as all those other people? Like the Pharisee said in the story Jesus told, I thank thee that I'm not like these other men. I do all these good things. But the poor tax collector, he beat his breast and wouldn't even look up and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the only basis on which the Lord Jesus will raise up His people at the last day. And notice that it says we have everlasting life and we shall not come into condemnation. We have passed from death unto life. So this is the truth of the matter as opposed to the error of purgatory, that the Lord Jesus has the power to forgive sins and He does forgive the sin of all those who trust in Him and He promises everlasting life. And there's nary a hint, is there, of any transient move through the torments of purgatory and what Jesus teaches. But in answer to the false claims of purgatory, there is indeed a change promised by the Scripture. Everyone's right who says that we need to change. They're just wrong about torments being the method of that change. There is a change promised by the Scripture for the persons of believers after they die. Not through torment of flames, but by the power of Christ towards us. That's the means by which a change is wrought in the Lord's people. I would remind you first of all of Romans 8 at verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate what? He predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So you see there is a predestination of the Lord's people whom He chooses and who come to believe in Him, that we should be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, so that He might be the first of many brethren. In Hebrews 2 it says that He might lead many sons unto glory. In that case, the obverse point is being made, that Christ was made like His brethren, that is, clothed with humanity, that He might be the captain of our salvation and lead many sons to glory. Here, the opposite is the case, that we are to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. That we're to be made like Him. That's what we're predestined for. We who are called to trust in the Lord. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, He also called. And whom He called, then He also justified. And whom He justified, then He also glorified. There is a change wrought in us when we are called by the Holy Spirit. 
There is a change wrought in us when we are justified by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Our sins transferred to Him, His righteousness transferred to us, imputed to us. And so to be conformed to the image of Christ ultimately will include that we are justified and that we are glorified in the end. Declared without fault before God, that's to be justified. Made righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness and already accomplished by the blood of Jesus, applied to us when we believe. And then we're to be glorified, made like the glorified Jesus. This is the culmination, you see, of what he says we were predestinated for, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in the end, you see, we're promised that we'll be glorified, to be made like the glorified Christ, perfected like Jesus is perfect, placed in great splendor, freed from all evil, introduced into the enjoyment of all that is good. And the Spirit is working on us now toward that end. But one day, when the resurrection comes, you see, all those things will be perfected in us. And so, you see, there is a change that is already wrought and yet to be wrought in the believer who's trusted in Jesus. And this change is not through the torments of purgatory after we die. It's by the operation of the power of Christ to conform us to Himself. Already we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, the Scriptures tell us. But one day we will be glorified completely, made like Christ, conformed to His image, and entering into the fullness of all the beauty and the glory of His presence in heaven forever. Now, one method used by the Spirit to bring about this change that the Roman Catholic system is so eager to use purgatory to produce, but the scriptural method, one of the methods used, is that we view the glory of Christ in this life. We view it. We see this in 2 Corinthians 3, well-known passage to us. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That is freedom from the terrors of the law and freedom in the presence of a God who has reconciled us unto Himself by the blood of Jesus. And the Spirit is given to us And now we have liberty where once we were slaves to sin. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now he's referencing here that Moses who saw a part of God's glory, his face shone so brightly that he had to put a veil on because the people couldn't stand to see the brightness of the glory that had been induced in his face by his seeing a small part of God's glory up on the Mount Sinai. This is the context of this statement, that now the Spirit changes us into the glory of Christ little by little as we gaze upon the glory of Christ. And how do we do this? By Scripture. 
by the reading of Scripture, by meditation upon the things of Christ as we walk and as we lie down at night, by worship together with the Lord's people, by the singing of Christian hymns that glorify Christ and exhort us to obedience by celebrating His dying for us at the Lord's table. In all these ways and many more, we're confronted by the glory of Christ. And as we look upon it, the Holy Spirit uses it to shine upon us, as it were, and convert us, glorify us, change us into the image of Christ from glory to glory, that is progressively, you see. His glory is infinite. Our glory is but little at this point. And yet, we progress in glory as we view the glory of Christ, just as Moses did physically as he viewed the glory of God. We spiritually become more glorious and have that glory impressed upon us when we view the glory of Christ. Well, you see, this is a far different mechanism of purifying and perfecting the Lord's people than the notion of purgatory is. Our glory, the Spirit works in us as we view the glory of the Lord Jesus. The final change will be when we see Him with our own eyes as He is. And this, of course, is described by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3. We read these verses, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew not Him. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You see that as we seek to be pure, as Christ is pure, in thought and word and deed, it is the Holy Ghost that works that in us. And we long for that day when we do lay our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, when we will be made like him, for we shall see him as He is. This is really a restatement of what Paul said in Romans 8 and other places where he described this promise that we will be changed because we are justified and we will soon be glorified. And Paul makes references to this change by the working of the Spirit, by the seeing of the glory of Christ and it changing us, even in this world. And now here he says the final change, you see, is when we see Christ and when that makes us like Him. Finally, the glory of Christ, the perfections and beauty of Christ are stamped upon us so strongly that we can be said to have been made like Jesus. Now even our mortal bodies will be changed to be like unto Christ's glorious body. We are rather materialistic in our day. And we think that religion is all just about spiritual things. But the Scriptures not only teach that we shall be made like Christ in 
our souls and persons, but also in our very bodies. No matter how broken down your body might be, no matter how sick you might be, no matter how much pain you're in or uncomfortableness you live in, one day, you see, your body will be conformed to the image of Christ. will be given bodies like His glorified body. Do you remember the main thing about Christ's glorified body is that it's not subject to the way the world works. He passed through walls. He appeared and disappeared at will. He traveled distances without the need of time. He was not subject to death. Of course, He wasn't subject to death before He died, but He was raised from the dead because He voluntarily laid down His life. He's no more subject to death. There is no corruption. There is no sin. There is no sin nature. There ever was in Christ. But one day we will not have a sin nature at all when our bodies are changed like unto Christ's body. But look at what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, for whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. You see, the Lord Jesus is the Creator of all the world. He made all the life. He made all the bodies. But then we were corrupted by our sin. But Christ has the power to conform all things to Himself. One day He has promised, and Paul repeats the promise, that He will change our vile bodies, lowly bodies, broken down bodies, sinful bodies, whatever the case might be, to be likened to His glorious body. You see, this is resurrection power of Christ exercised by the Lord Jesus on the people whom He loves, on His people who've trusted in Him. This is one of the things He will do when He raises us up from the dead. He will change our bodies to be like His glorious body. This is a work of Christ in resurrection power. It's not the work of torments in some sort of mythical purgatory. Paul expands on this in his glorious teaching about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And we read large portions of that text. But just to review 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 35, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. It's talking about planting wheat or flowers or whatever. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased Him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, that is, our bodies. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. 
Paul is pointing out that when our bodies are planted in the ground, when we die, we have these characteristics, corruption, mortality, weakness, dishonor. And when Christ raises us up, the bodies that we then have are spiritual bodies, which doesn't mean they're not tangibly physical, because they are. Christ was when He rose from the grave, and so will ours be. But He calls them spiritual bodies as opposed to natural bodies, because all of those things that go along with natural bodies are taken away. They're not present in the new body. He doesn't just convert our bodies in terms of perfecting them. He gives us new bodies. We're raised up in new bodies of Christ's manufacture, which do not have corruption, are not subject to death, have great glory, have great power, and are spiritual bodies. But then notice at verse 46, how be it? That was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. You see, these are new bodies that are given to us by Christ. The old bodies are done away with, as it were. They are raised, but we're raised new bodies, not the same old body. But then notice this declaration by Paul, which strikes at the heart of the so-called working of the torments of purgatory. Paul says in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Well, Paul's point to be made here is that all of this transpires at Christ's resurrecting His people, but that it also happens to those who never died to begin with because they're alive when Jesus returns. For them... They are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So you see that the change is one that we all need, living believers and dead believers, when Christ returns. It comes both to the dead and to the living, and it's not through suffering the torments of purgatory. Again, there's no room in the timeline to insert a stint of purgatory for those saints who are alive when Jesus comes. It just says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Changed by the resurrecting power of Christ. There's no room for that other teaching for those who are living at Christ's return. And then look what it says at verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we notice there that he puts it backward from the way we would say it. He says, the sting of death is sin, 
We say, no, 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 no. The sting of sin is death. That's what we would say. But no, what he's saying is what makes death so bad is because of the sin that it is the judgment for. That's the strength of death is sin. You see, if a person dies in their sin, then there's no hope for them. What really makes that death a dying is that they died in their sin. But for the Lord's people, Paul always says that we are asleep in Jesus. You see, the sting of death, the thing that makes it so odious and noxious and harmful and destructive for all eternity is the sin we died with. But for the Lord's people, we don't die with any sin. Christ has taken all our sin away. And the strength of sin is the law, of course. It's the law that we broke that is the sin and that by its own power can never save a poor sinner because we can never keep the law. But praise God, Christ kept it for us. And He gave to us His righteousness. It was imputed to us, we who could not obtain righteousness by law-keeping. It can be obtained from Christ by faith. So the change that we all need comes both to the dead and to living believers. Not through suffering, but through the resurrection power of Christ. Even people who haven't died when Christ returns, you see, will experience the same change of Christ's power of resurrection as those who have died. The same change will be upon those living in Christ when He comes back. It is the changing of our mortal bodies with our new glorified bodies like Christ's resurrection body in which corruption is put off and immortality is clothed upon us by Christ, just like He said He would do in John 5 and in other places. In answer to the Roman Catholic reasonableness claim that we must be purified by torments, we come to the truth of the matter. We have the true answer. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And by His resurrection power, we are changed. Our bodies are changed out from mortal bodies full of corruption and full of sin into spiritual bodies like the body, the glorified body of our Savior. And He works that change instantly at the resurrection for all of His people whether living or dead. You see, we're already viewed by God as clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, those of us who've trusted in Him, who've laid hold of His sacrifice, claimed the blood of Jesus as our only hope before an offended God. We've been clothed by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. We've been given that robe of righteousness. We've been given those garments of salvation. The truth of the matter is, as for our bodies, we don't need a purgatory. What we need is the promised and blessed resurrection, which the Lord Jesus has the mighty power to work in all of His people one day at the end when He raises us up at the last day. It reminds me of the words of that precious song that we sing clothed in garments of salvation.
at thy table is our place. We rejoice and thou rejoicest in the riches of thy grace. And so if you've trusted in Jesus, you see, you have a place around the Lord's table this morning to celebrate what Christ did. To celebrate the bloodshedding that He made for the remission of our sins. And the empowerment of His resurrection right to raise up all of His people, living and dead, paradoxically. Living and dead to raise us up unto glorified bodies like unto His glorified body. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. And give thanks first for the body which the Lord Jesus laid down for us on the cross. O God, our Father, we rejoice in the teaching of the power of Christ to raise up His people from the dead, living or dead, to raise us up unto new bodies, new glorified bodies, spiritual bodies, that sin and sigh no more, that leave behind all corruption and death and weakness and trouble and sorrow and pain and sin. God, thank You that You sent Your Son to be our substitute, to pay all the price for our crimes, to put us in right standing with You, to reconcile us unto You. Lord, that we come before You trusting in Jesus and Jesus only, and that we rejoice to remember how His body was broken in our place on the cross so that we might be saved, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be raised one day by Christ into glorious bodies. Thank You that He has discharged by His offering, by His dying, all the guilt and all the punishment that we should have received. We thank You for this bread that Jesus left us to picture that sacrifice made for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 78. Jesus the very thought of Thee. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek. To those who fall, how kind Thou art, how good to those who seek. But what to those who find? Ah, this no tongue nor pen can show the love of Jesus, what it is. None but His loved ones know. Number 78.